Well, we, um, what do you do with a world of people who do not value Jesus? Because quite honestly, that's really where we live. The people around us, for the most part, do not value the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I say that to us, I wonder how much of that is our responsibility? How much of that is because we maybe don't recognize the great value of Christ ourselves? Oh yes, we understand him as the savior who's come to set us free from our sins and all of that, but maybe, just maybe, it's never really gripped our hearts in a way that is so recognizable, so palpable that the people around us are actually influenced and impacted by how much we love the Lord, how much we love Christ, how much of a wow factor is Jesus in your life. I'm firmly convinced that in this section of the scriptures that we're going to look at today, that the preacher of Hebrews, in his ongoing message to the people, is, con is, is continually telling them the message of the greatness of Christ. He began at the start of his sermon by sharing with all of us the supremacy of Christ. And now he is moving to convince those people who are kind of on the edge, is wondering if they should stay in their old life of rules and regulations and rituals, or if they should give their lives wholly to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he presents a case in the text today of the awesomeness of Christ the Lord. Now, we live, of course, among a, a, a variety of people. In the day uh, that this was, was published, the Hebrew church, of course, the major audience was the, the Judaistic uh, people, the Jews who were being presented with the gospel of Christ and were still confused as to whether they should go back to the way they were and, or, or if they should move forward with Christ. And of course, the preacher is making a strong case for, the, for the, the, the value of the Lord Jesus Christ in comparison to what they had. And of course, then we live among uh, uh, peoples of the world uh, around us, for the most part, are secularists or, or um, um, materialists who don't even believe in the existence of God. So how much more important is, uh, is it for us that we demonstrate the great value of Jesus Christ to us? And then, of course, there are others in a variety of religions, whether it be Islam or or uh, the modern-day uh, Jewish faith, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or you name whatever it is, or simply those people who we meet day by day who believe that God will be impressed somehow by their good works. To all of those categories, which all, by the way, bypass Jesus on an effort to get to God, we must demonstrate in our lives the awesomeness of Christ Jesus. Would you turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 7? Hebrews chapter 7. Into this variety of peoples, the preacher of Hebrews makes the case that if we are to hang on and hang in against great opposition, against other belief systems, and make a persuasive case for Christ, then Christians themselves must be captivated by the awesomeness of Jesus. My prayer as I wrestled last night for a long, long time 
was that you, that somehow the Spirit of God would enable me through the Word of God to portray and paint such a grand picture of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning that you would leave with a new sense of awesomeness about your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. That's my goal. Uh, not just to, um, to understand about the Lord Jesus Christ, but to finally in your life be gripped by the wow factor of Christ Jesus. So in your text, in the scriptures, there is a big question that's being asked or answered in this section of scripture. Should I leave my present worldview way of seeing or doing life to embrace the worldview of Jesus Christ? I mean, that's the question that this sermon continues to present to the people, to the audience, to that audience, and to this audience. Should I leave, and why should I leave my present worldview, which means simply the way of doing life, the way of seeing life, to embrace the worldview of Jesus Christ? Can you answer that question? When someone comes to you and says, why? I know you go to church on Sundays. I know you do that. You read your Bible and all that. But why should I leave my worldview to embrace the worldview of Jesus Christ? That's the answer, that's the question that's being put forward here. And some of the things, some of the observations, some of the answers that we need to be able to propose, some of the questions that we need to be able to put before people go something like this. Well, do you realize how relational God is? Do you, do you realize that the God of the universe is interested in a personal, life-transforming relationship with you? Or do you know how much better Jesus is than anything else you have going on? Do you realize that? Does our life reflect that? If they look back at us and say, well, is Jesus the best thing you've got going on in your life? Or another question that probably should come up is something like this. Do you know how precarious your state of being is before Almighty God. Do you realize whoever's asking you the question of why should I leave my present worldview to embrace the worldview of Jesus Christ, the question that we need to pose to them, do you realize how precarious your present life is in the sight of Almighty God? Well, in our text... We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, and following. The first, the second word that we read really is insightful. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood. Let me stop right there. I don't want there to be any confusion. I think I've said this many, many times and quite honestly, um, the writer or the, the preacher of Hebrews keeps saying the same thing over and over again in a different way. And quite honestly, that's all I do as well. You might think I preach to you different sermons. I never preach different sermons to you. They're just the same sermon packaged in a different way. Because there is only really one message and one gospel message. And the clarity that is necessary for all of us to understand is this, that God's standard is 
perfection. And you're looking back at me the same way the first group of people looked at me with squinted eyes and, 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 and uh, brows that are furrowed. What you talking about, Willis? You have to be old to know that show. That's right. In order for us to have a relationship eternally in the presence of a holy God requires perfection. And all of us know that none of us qualify for that standard. That's the critical reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel. The argument that continues throughout all of the scriptures is the perfection of Jesus the Christ. And those who are in him have the perfection of Christ, his righteousness imputed to them. And so the argument here for those who are saying, well, I don't know whether I want to stay with the law of the Old Testament or not. It's just Jesus thing. It seems like a new deal, a newfangled thing. Here's what the preacher is saying. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, which you guys are all trying to hang on to, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. We're not taking any time today to talk about the whole argument of Melchizedek. But the point that he is going to make here, as we read on, is that God did something remarkably different after decades and decades and centuries of the high priesthood being handed down generation to generation throughout one family of people, the family of Aaron. God does a dramatic change to catch everybody's attention. For when there is, I'm on, uh, I'm, I'm on, uh, Verse 12, for when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe. What tribe did Jesus belong to? The tribe of Aaron? The tribe of Judah? He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, in other words, rules of of pedigree, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. By the way, this text is just full of praise the Lord's. Hallelujah. Fred, you got to go nuts on this text. <laughs> for it is declared, for a, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, 
The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Praise the Lord. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Hallelujah. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely, or I love the King James, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Praise the Lord. Such a priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, Pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, perfect. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath of God, which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is such a powerful and profound insight into why Jesus is better than anything or anyone. Well, that's really the sermon. I mean, he preached the sermon. I can't improve on the sermon that the preacher of Hebrews preached, but I'm going to try my best to just give you a little insight into what's going on around here. You know, to the materialists who don't believe that God even exists, how important it is for us when we read a text like this and to live a life like this to allow the awesomeness and wow factor of Jesus to exude from every pore of our life that they might see something real. Because materialists are all about what they can touch, what they can see, uh, what they can experience. And this salvation that we proclaim is an experiential salvation. It's a relationship with the living God. And, And it should be that they should look at us and say, oh, if I only had passion for anything, the way you have passion for your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what I long for. I long for somehow my life to be such an open book of love for Jesus that people who don't know him would look at me and say, I don't know what you have, but I would just love to have anything in my life that you love that much, that you're that passionate about. I really think that's going to be the difference. I really think if we can, if, if Pastor Nick's prayer was prophetic this morning and he was praying for people who are yet to sit in this building, they're not yet saved people. In this experiential, secularist, materialist culture we live in, it is not going to be enough for us to walk around with an intellectual 
understanding of our salvation. It is absolutely going to have to transform our lives and our passion so that they see in our lives something profoundly desirable. That's the critical thing that is being portrayed for us here today. Hebrews is one of the strongest New Testament letters on the case for Christ because Jesus is the game changer of life. You cannot get to God and bypass Jesus. You cannot get to God and bypass Jesus. To the Jews, to the Muslims, to the Buddhists, to the Hindus, to the materialists, to whoever, you can't get to God and bypass Jesus. It's not possible. Unless old, settled, wrong patterns of life give way or shift to Jesus as Lord and Savior, a person will not find reality in life, will not find fulfillment in life, will not find their purpose in life, and will not be reconciled to God in life. If people insist on rules and works and things, their lives will be a shipwreck. And that's what we see around us. Everything is made better by Jesus because he is better. Now, I want to show you um, what, by way of a little visual theology, what the argument was trying to accomplish here. You've heard of a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is simply moving from one pattern of behavior to a different one. And basically, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, you guys got to make a paradigm shift. You've got to decide. Is it going to be you're going to live under the law or are you going to live based on Christ alone. You've got to decide. Everybody has to decide. Are you going to live for religion? Are you going to live for Christ? Are you going to live for your works? Are you going to live for Christ? Are you going to live for your material things? Are you going to live for Christ? Everyone has to answer that question. Everyone has to answer the question of what, why should I change my worldview? Why should I make a paradigm shift to Christ? And so in the, uh, in the this, in this situation that we have, the paradigm shift that he's simply teaching here is that you are either living under regulations which are basically physical rules or injunctions or commands or way of doing things or, or heritage or habits or you are going to live for Christ. And in the particular situation setting that they were in, these individuals that were being invited to, the, to, to embrace the gospel were, were living in, under a law-centered theology. And they were trying or attempting to please God by their attention to the law. And the point that all of the gospels make, all of the New Testament makes, and the Old Testament makes itself, is that the law can't save you. The law can only point out how bad you really are. The regulations, the commands, the teachings of the scriptures can only show you how far short you fall of the glory of God. But it can't save you. Only God saves. And so while they were steeped in a law-centered theology, the case of Hebrews is you need to make the shift to a Christ centered theology, where you, where you truly trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, the perfect, sinless, 
blameless son of God. And when you do that, then in fact, you fully understand or can accurately interpret the Old Testament scriptures. Now, let's be certain on something. The Old Testament wasn't hiding the truth of faith in God, wasn't hiding the truth of coming Messiah. I put there that it was in italics, hidden, a Christ-centered trajectory. But the reason the preacher is using Old Testament teaching here is he's saying, you should have seen this. It was printed before your very eyes. It's been taught to you all along that Messiah would come, that, that the, the, uh, the Old Testament system of law was simply to demonstrate how far short you were falling. In fact, there were sacrifices that had to be made by the priest on your behalf. You should have seen this. But we live in a whole different category because for the most part, we're not talking about to, to people who are steeped in law-centered theology. We're for the most part not interacting with Jews. We are interacting with Muslims, however. But for the most part, we're, we're interacting with people who are steeped in a, what I call a work-centered theology. Now, the reason I use the word theology is because everybody's serving a God of some sort. And the works, secular-centered people are, are serving the God of this world. So they, have a, they live in a work-centered theology whereby they suggest that if we, we live our lives legally and well and our behavior is good, then perhaps God will be okay with us. And to those people, we bring the same message that he's bringing. No, a thousand times no. You can't bypass Jesus to get to God. It's not going to happen. It won't work. But when we do finally come to Christ, then we get an accurate interpretation of, uh, of works and life. In other words, once we have come to know Christ, we are called upon to do good works. But works don't save us. We are saved to do good works. And that's the message, the simple visual message that we are bringing to people. So... The truth of the scriptures are this. Everything is made better by Jesus because he is better than anyone and anything. I want to look at two, three verses with you today and, and unpack them a little bit so that we can demonstrate how amazing Jesus really is. And the first two verses are this. 7, 18, and 19, the former regulation is set aside. That's the very thing we talked about in the visual. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. It only revealed imperfection. If I'm repeating myself, I know I am. I don't want you to miss this. The law could only show you how far you have fallen. It couldn't fix anyone. Likewise, works in order to impress God are an offense to him. It offends the living God that people would think that they can bribe God with some sort of lame effort at good works. The magnitude of our sinfulness cannot be fixed by 20 bucks on an offering plate or 50 bucks at a charity. It's an offense to God that we think we could bribe him 
to forgive us for our sins. And likewise to the materialists, they don't even believe God exists. But here's the brilliance of Jesus. Jesus can and does fix people. He does what the law can't do. Jesus does satisfy God's payment requirement. And Jesus is real and relates to us. So at every level, whether it's a law keeper or a work-centered person or a materialist, Jesus is better than everything or anything they have to offer. That's our powerful message to them. That's the powerful message of the gospel to them. That's how we draw near to God. How do you make your way to God? That's the question that we have to pose to people. How do you make your way to God? We have a better hope to draw near to God because of Jesus. Jesus brings us close to God. You see, sin in particular chases a holy, divine God away. That's the whole reason that there was a priesthood in the first place. The reason that God instituted a a, a Levitical priesthood was so that it would be possible at all, if there was any possibility that human beings could commune with God, there needed to be somebody between a holy, righteous God who is wrathful against sin and a sinful people. And so the Old Testament priesthood was established that there would be an individual, the high priest, who could go and enter into the presence of God by the Holy of Holies once a year called the Day of Atonement, offering a sacrifice for our sins that we might be able to commune with the Holy God. There needed to be a priest standing in between a holy, righteous God and a sinful humanity. The fact that the vast majority of humanity is alive at all is because of the gracious forbearance of God in salvation through Jesus Christ. That's why the priesthood was established. And so he makes the point here of the need of the priest. But he goes on to make the point that the priests who formerly stood between the people and an almighty, powerful God were a temporary situation. See, the bottom line is that humanity is a priest away from being entirely vaporized by a holy God. We, we need to understand the precarious nature of the outrage to which God has against sinful people and evil and wickedness. Unless we understand this reality, the the book of Hebrews, and Jesus in particular, will make no sense to us. Humanity's greatest problem is not a, a failed marriage or hard to raise kids, or war, or poverty, or immorality, or finances. Humanity's greatest problem is how to be reconciled to a God so that we will escape 
the terrifying wrath of judgment. You see, we perhaps don't realize that God in his incredible love and amazing purposes has determined that his creation is not going to be allowed to carry on into eternity with wickedness and evil and sinfulness. And so he has established a day called the day of the Lord, called the time of judgment, where God will say enough. My creation, my universe will no longer go forward steeped in evil and wickedness. I'm calling a closure to this. And on that day, the living God has to judge evil and wickedness and destroy it for all time. The point of salvation is that Jesus Christ has been given to us to stand in between a holy God and a sinful people for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, if you will, is our asbestos between the white, hot wrath of God towards sin and our existence for all eternity. That has some implications as we move into the next verse that I want to share with you, which is a verse, verse 25. Therefore, therefore he, Jesus, is able to completely save completely or to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Why? And this phrase is critical because... He always lives to intercede for them or pray for them. Why do we need Jesus to always pray for us? This is going to sound maybe weird to you. But Jesus saves us from God. Now, before you gather a group of people to remove me from the platform, <laughs> let's make sure we understand something here. The love of God saves us from the wrath of God so that in the justice of God, we can experience the mercy of God to the glory of God. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to save us from the judgment of God. This is the gospel. How many know John 3.16? How many know Hebrews 7.25? By next Sunday, I want all hands up. Because Hebrews 7.25 is the John 3.16 of Hebrews. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost 
those who come to God through him because he ever lives to intercede for us. Do we understand what's being told us here? Jesus alone. We use the, when you're talking about the language of save, it's save from what? It's save from the wrath of God. And we wouldn't want a God any different than this, beloved. We want our God to hate wickedness and evil and destruction and rescue us from it forever. Jesus alone saves you completely from God's final judgment on all wickedness. That's the precarious state of the universe. How? How does this happen? Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. What does that mean? Was the old covenant bad? No. No, was anything that God gives us bad? No, the old covenant wasn't bad. The new covenant is simply better. Because the old covenant was temporary. The new covenant is eternal. The old covenant was incomplete. The new covenant is completed in Jesus Christ, which was always the goal of the older covenant, was to move to Jesus. Jesus has become the guarantee of this better covenant. Jesus is our guarantee. But Jesus also, it says in the text here, lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Look at verse 24. Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. You see, the priests of the Old Testament had a career-limiting problem. You know what that is? They died. That is a career-limiting problem, isn't it? Dying. But Jesus won't die. He's a forever priest. We will always have our priest. That's a tremendous truth for us. When um, Aaron, at the, who was at the head of the priesthood, had grown very, very old, and as they were wandering around in the wilderness, Moses was told by God, get your brother Aaron, get your nephew Eleazar, Aaron's son, and I want you to go up to Mount Hor, and there Aaron will die. And Eleazar will become the high priest. And so they did. They migrated up to that. By the way, for those of you who've been out over there, it's in the area of Petra, where Mount Hor is. And there they climbed that mountain together, the three of them, Moses, Aaron, and Eleazar. When they got to the top of the mountain, Moses took the cloak off his brother of the high priest and walked it over and placed it on Eleazar, the son and Aaron died. They went on from there a little further where Moses was invited by the living God to climb up Mount Nebo, which is on the other side of Jericho overlooking the promised land, and there Moses died, illustrating to all for all time two things. The shortcomings of the Levitical priesthood were this, the priests died but secondly, and maybe even more powerfully, 
is they weren't allowed to take the people into the promised land. And it was a reminder for all time that it wasn't going to be by humans, the human priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, that would bring people into salvation. It was going to be by the living Christ who does not die and brings people into the promised land. And he stands in the presence of God every day, every hour, every minute, interceding for us. Why? Because we are sinful. And he protects us from the breakout of the wrath of God. This Jesus, who has taken our sins upon himself once for all, didn't die for himself, died for us, stands in the presence of God interceding. Do you remember when Jesus was among us and he talked to Peter and he said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. And then Jesus said this, but I have prayed that your faith will not fail. Beloved, do you realize how amazing our Christ is? Our forever priest who stands in the presence of living God, protecting our salvation forever, praying for us all the time that our faith will not fail, praying for us by name. Peter, I prayed for you. I prayed for the other guys that your faith will not fail. Praying for us, praying that we will not sin, praying that we will not fall into temptation, praying that we will not give up, praying that we will not face a harmful persecution, praying for us, praying for us, praying for us. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus, stands in the presence of God praying for us. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost completely. The word pentelis, forever, perfected, complete, total. He's removed our sin. He's freed us from our past guilt. He's freed us from sin's power. He has completely and totally and utterly saved us, and Jesus keeps us safe forever. That's why it's such an affront to the living Christ for us to even entertain the idea that our salvation could walk away from us. It's not us who keeps us saved. It's Jesus, our high priest, in the presence of God who keeps us saved. That's how we're saved. Praise the name of Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself for our sins once for all and has been made permanently perfect. In other words, efficacious. What Jesus has done actually works. And only what Jesus has done. So to those on the outside looking in, there is no other way to God. You can't bypass Jesus because only what he has done God declares works and is perfect and is permanent. So that's why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said to them in reference to their salvation and what others were talking about, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Lost one, 
If there's anyone here this morning who does not know this Jesus, today, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your hearts. Come to him. This message is come to Jesus. This message is the, that Christ has already paid for your sins. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him. Be drawn to him. If you know the living Christ, the message goes out to you all over again, the wow factor of Jesus. Jesus brings you into nearness with God. You should long to be in his presence. If you don't long to be in the presence of God, if you're not drawn into the presence of God, then what's wrong with you? Oh, beloved, consider Jesus, who is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he ever lives to intercede for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning with great thanksgiving in my heart for us. I pray, O oh God, that we would take upon ourselves a new passion for what you have done for us and who you are, O oh Christ. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and we wonder how he could love us. Sinners, condemned, unclean. How wonderful. How glorious. Father, we just pray this morning and thank you for our salvation in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name, his powerful name, our forever priest. Amen. Oh, to our awesome, incredible, holy, blameless, incredible Savior. To you we offer our lives afresh. And thank you, O oh God. We thank you that you have chosen to bring us into your family and stand as a buffer between our sinfulness and a holy, amazing, righteous, loving, gracious God. To you alone deserves all the praise, honor, and glory now and forevermore. Amen and amen.